Hey everyone, Asim here. Carbon Hack is back this year. The hackathon will take place from Monday, March the 18th to Monday, April the 8th, 2024. Carbon Hack 24 is all about redefining the way we measure software to reduce its environmental footprint. At the heart of this hackathon is Impact Framework, an open source tool that lets you compute and report the environmental impacts of software applications accurately. Here's the challenge. In small teams, participants will have the freedom to choose from a variety of prize categories. So how can you become part of Carbon Hack 24? It's as simple as signing up on our website at grnsft.org forward slash hack forward slash podcast. Join us for three weeks of exciting challenges where engineers, designers, and content creators will use Impact Framework to measure software's environmental footprint. We can't wait to see what innovations and solutions emerge from this incredible event. See you there. There's no point people wasting time and money and energy like reinventing the wheel. Somebody's doing something that might be useful to others. Put it out there, share it. And then we can all stand on each other's shoulders and go a lot further, a lot faster. Hello, and welcome to Environment Variables, brought to you by the Green Software Foundation. In each episode, we discuss the latest news and events surrounding green software. On our show, you can expect candid conversations with top experts in their field who have a passion for how to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of software. I'm your host, Chris Adams. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Week in Green Software, where we bring you the latest news and updates from the world of sustainable software development. I'm your host, Chris Adams, and in this episode, we'll be talking about a few insights from the recent State of Green Software report, a brief survey of developments of the environmental impact of large language models, unexpected news about monoliths versus serverless for green coding, employee activism policies for the workplace, and finally, some events and opportunities for development from the world of green software. But before we dive into this, let me introduce my special guest from Whole Grain Digital for this episode of This Week in Green Software. With us today, we have Tom Greenwood. Hi, Tom. Why not introduce yourself from here? Hi, Chris. Yeah, I'm Tom and I'm co-founder of Whole Grain Digital and been a big proponent of sustainable web design for a number of years. I wrote the book, Sustainable Web Design. And yeah, into all things sustainable business and sustainable technology, really. So keen to be here. Cool, thank you. Also, the website Carbon Guy as well. Not the website Carbon Guy, yeah. <laughs> Not many people know that I'm involved in that. I sometimes I'm walking around in like tech conferences and I hear somebody talking about this website Carbon Calculator and I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, that I was, was involved in that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. And for folks, and if you're not used to, if this is your first episode, my name is Chris, as I mentioned before. I am the executive director of the Green Web Foundation and the policy chair for the Green Software Foundation. I'm one of the maintainers of a software library called co2.js. And we also work at the Green Web Foundation, where we run various checkers and tools and open source software for understanding the environmental impact of green software. So if you're new to this show, the general format is that it's a roundup of some new stories that we've seen this week that we thought were worth talking about. 
So what we'll do is we'll share a link, have a bit of a chat about each of these, and then run through until we run out of time. Should we have a look at the first one together then? Yeah, sure. Let's dive in. Okay, so the first one here is a new report that was released last week, which is called The State of Green Software, released by the Green Software Foundation. This has been a bit of a labor of love for the last crime, blimey, nearly a year trying to get some of this together. And uh, it went live last week. And if you go to stateof.greensoftware.foundation, you can see the report and all of the findings in their hyperlinked glory. Tom, there's a couple of things that caught your eyes on here. But what should we talk about first in this one? Yeah, sure. First of all, someone's been very busy doing all this research, which is fantastic. And I was really excited to see that there was so much in it, which is a big change from several years back where there was not a lot going on in this space. And the thing that jumped out at me specifically on that level was one of the items around they'd found 2,000 specialized software tools related to green software, which is a huge number to think that there are that many projects going on, however big or small it might be, means there's a lot of people interested and are starting to actually work in the space. That's true. And if you think there's maybe, what, a few million developers, that's actually a surprisingly high proportion of developers and projects. Assume you have a one-to-one and there's not, I know, one person making a hundred of them. That's actually pretty impressive, actually. I think the research that we have here, let's have a quick look, because I can't remember if this is just looking at GitHub or if there's been a look across all of the different tools. Yeah, this is mainly looking at GitHub, actually. So given there's been a kind of explosion of other tools like GitLab or Git-T or other things like that, there may be more. Like you folks use GitLab as well, don't we you? We use GitLab, yes. Yeah, so we're not included in this yeah. statistic. Yeah. So, so that's, this could um, be more than that case. It could be, yeah. And they've been quite cautious in their numbers, I think, in the way that they've laid it out. So actually, if anything, it could be more. So we have some forks. But including the forks, it's at least 2,000, which is a number which is significantly higher than zero, which probably what it was maybe five years ago. So that's encouraging. All right. Anything else catch your eye in this one, actually, Tom? Yeah, the other one was around what was called decarbonization alone cannot make green software. And it was basically an article around the fact that we need to think about more than just using renewable energy and making things energy efficient. They're obviously two really important components, Mm. but there are other environmental factors from digital technology, basically. They focus specifically on water, but I think like the message is really, let's think more holistically about the environmental impacts of digital technology rather than just being about like energy, weather and carbon emissions. And I think that's really important because like water is obviously like a key resource fundamental to human life, especially clean drinking water, and it's limited. But it also gets, if you take this more holistic mindset, then you also think about things like electronic waste as well and how these things factor. Um, I'm really glad that they've highlighted that because I think that when we're talking about these things, we do tend to focus, we'd be a bit tunnel visioned on the kind of the energy piece. You use that spe- specific term, a tunnel visioned on the carbon. We'll have to share a link to that diagram of the person's eyes. You know the one I'm talking about where someone's only looking at carbon and missing all of the other kind of yeah. parts of this big circular forms of impact that we actually have. Okay, cool. I'm glad you mentioned that. Where we work at the Green Web Foundation, we talk about the environmental impacts of software in a number of ways. We talk about efficiency, which is one thing we're used to. But we talk about intensity, of which carbon is one. And you can also have water in intensity and various other minerals being drawn out of the earth and also toxicity and things like that. So yeah, this yeah, is absolutely exactly. a place to be looking at. All right, there's. A, can, I give, can I share one? Because there was one yeah, thing yeah, that caught for... my eye. So this one here was this idea that 
developers want to have a positive impact. There was one really nice study or stat from this. It goes from, according to this survey, which is over, I think it's just under 3,000 developers took place in the survey from this. 35% of the practitioners shared they and their organization never measure the environmental impact of software. They said that they really want to, though. So they found that, say, only 8.5% have actually taken any green software training, although more than half of them are looking for stuff. So this suggests that there is an unpent demand and or unmet demand for this stuff. And I guess the thing we should probably do at this point with my hat on is basically say that or share a link to the fact that the Linux Foundation does actually have some free training that can give you, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to call it accredited or certified, but Mm -hmm. there is some form of recognition that lawyers allow you to use the word for that let you say that you've done this and get a bit of a grounding on this. We'll share a link to that because it's actually quite useful. And it was based around the principles.green website from a couple of years back that Asim worked on. That's brilliant. Yeah. It's obviously disappointing in a way that like people haven't been able to necessarily do the training or find the training that they want. But the fact that like more than half of software practitioners would like to is amazing because it's just a matter of time then before they do find it and they do take that training and they start to embed it into their work. That's exciting. There is also scope and hope, in my view, for things when people are just starting to come into the industry. So previously, we did a podcast interview with Luis Cruz at TU Technical University, Delft, where he was talking about an open source syllabus that he was working on for students doing a master's at his course. And last week, I went to South Southern Germany, to Freiburg, to for the first ever software engineering course, which was specifically aimed at sustainability first, ahead of the actual software engineering part, which I really enjoyed. It was really cool. And it was a project run by the European Commission where they basically issued something like 20 uh, scholarships to all these young students from, say, Bangladesh or Nigeria or Germany or Indonesia, lots and lots of places which are outside of just North America and Western Europe, Mm. where people who are often, in many cases, you would associate with the people who are on the sharp end of lots of the changes of climate. You had a bunch of those people coming along and learning and talking about, okay, yeah, this is how I want to build this into my work when I graduate. It was really exciting and really inspiring. I'll have to share some more links to that one as well. That is amazing. All right, let's look at the next story then. So this is one about, I think it's called Scaling Up the Prime Audio Video Monitoring Service and Reducing Costs by 90%. It's a, bit, it's a pretty, pretty dull title, but basically <laughs> the thrust of this story is that it did, a ra- it did the rounds recently. Amazon shared a blog post uh, about their Amazon Prime Video service. And a lot of us are used to this idea of serverless software being the kind of trendy thing that turns itself off and it's seen as one of the most efficient ways to run infrastructure. The key thing from this was the team at Amazon basically saying, we moved away from using serverless to using boring, old and busted monolithic parts of the infrastructure. And we saved 90% of our infrastructure costs by doing this. This caused an explosion of hot takes across the internet with everyone saying, oh, monoliths versus serverless, everything like that. And I find it interesting in my view because this goes against the narrative that we typically do have where everything has to scale down to zero and everything like that. Anything that catches your eye in this one, Tom? Yeah, I get asked this question a lot. People asking me like, oh, shouldn't everything be serverless? And I'm not going to claim that I'm an expert in this, but but my answer is always, it depends, like yeah. everything. And I think my view has always been, that we shouldn't be dogmatic about technology. Like It's all about context and what you're trying to do with it. And every technology has a really valuable use case, but equally every technology has its flaws that mean that in the wrong application is not necessarily the best thing. 
And I think this is really interesting because they basically, they started off, they've used the hot trendy thing and it has been the right thing to build a prototype and get it going and like an MVP to demonstrate the principle. But then they found that actually we want to scale this. We want to make it really robust and efficient over the long term. Then actually the sort of monolith approach is actually really what we need. And I think it breaks down some of the dogma and I think it just just demonstrates that actually we need to just assess each use case on its merits rather than being dogmatic and allying ourselves to one solution for everything. Yeah, I agree with you on this. What we'll do is we'll share a link to a really nice piece from Adrian Cockcroft. Basically, she called So Many Bad Takes, What Is There to Learn from the Prime Video Microservices to Monolith Story, which expands on this in a bit more detail. Also, just for context, Tom, you folks use WordPress and PHP as like one of the main things that you folks use, right? We do, yeah. That gets a lot yeah. of criticism. <laughs> this is the thing that is, in my view, entertaining because the actual programming model for PHP, if you think about the things that people like about serverless, like you run something and then it scales back down to zero, the actual programming model used for PHP where you just load a script, bootstrap everything, server response, and then go back to, to nothing again. That's basically how things like PHP tend to work and how they're designed to work. This is how the whole shared hosting thing, for which it may be maligned, but this kind of approach has been essentially the mainstay for a bunch of infrastructure for 20 years. So mm. when you actually think about this, if you squint, basically WordPress and PHP, a bunch of this stuff can look kind of serverless in this way. So yeah, that's the thing that I just have. I'll share with all of you. Okay, should we look at the next story from this one? Yeah, yeah. All right, so I'm not sure I'm allowed to say this without ruining the language on this. So I'm going to just spell it out. The, there's a really nice piece from Atlassian called Don't F sharp at bang percent the planet. I think it might be don't... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's what... Uh, yeah, we know I what to <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I was born in Australia and uh, Australians can be known for colourful language. And this is a quite an Australian way to talk about don't F the planet. Basically, this is Atlassians talking about their most recent work on basically net zero and them sharing an actual report about how they did it, how they went about what steps they did, what was easy, what was not so hard and how other organisations can follow this themselves. Have you been following any of this, Tom? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's good to see, firstly, just that like you've got a big name company in the tech space that's not one of the big three going down this path and saying that we're taking sustainability seriously and we're taking it seriously on multiple levels. And it's not just a marketing thing. But then it's also nice to see how they're laying it out really transparently in a way that a lot of the big tech mm. companies are a bit vague. And instead, Atlassian has said, look, here's a nice report that tells you like how the journey of like why we're doing this, how mm. we got here, where we've got to, the things we found difficult. And then obviously they're going to be reporting on that moving forward, which is really good. One of the things that jumped out at me was the fact that they set themselves this target 2025 for having everything using 100% renewable energy. But they then found that actually just switching to a renewable energy provider and then using credits for the rest is, is like such a low-hanging fruit. They did it almost immediately. Mm. And then the question was like, oh, okay, like how do we make this more robust? Now that's the question moving forwards. But the low-hanging fruit was already there and they didn't even know it until they looked into it. Mm. So it's nice to see things like that where... I think they use the phrase, go fast and then go far, which I think is a really good way of thinking about it. It's do something to take a, like a step forward and then keep moving forward because there are low-hanging fruits. And I think a lot of people are put off by just feeling, oh, I don't know what to do. Especially things like net zero can sound mm. really complicated and scary as like such a, like a, a big lofty goal. And I think it's nice to see how the, they've taken this approach of let's just start moving in the right direction as fast as we can and then find the blockers along the way. 
Yeah, I have to say I'm a bit of a fan of Atlassian in general. And I, we use Trello where we work, all right? And uh, I know people have opinions about things like Jira and, and Confluence and things like that. And But it, it's really nice for an organization to be so transparent about the infrastructure as well. In their report, they're one of the few organizations that basically say, here's a breakdown of all of our infrastructure, how much we're using in every single data center. Yeah. And they provide this reporting, which is almost impossible to get out of other organizations. Yeah, so it's really cool it. to see them doing it. Yeah. The other thing that I think is quite interesting is that there's a kind of stereotype of like tech billionaires being generally terrible people, right? <laughs> there's something really interesting that I think from Mike Cannon-Brooks, who's one of the founders of Atlassian. So um, the funding he's using, rather than, I don't know, turning large social media websites into kind of havens for right-wing climate denial, one of the key things that he's been doing is basically aggressively buying up the biggest source of carbon emissions in Australia, which is the biggest power station they have, and then finding ways to refinance it so they can shut it down and replace it with wind and solar, basically, or primarily solar. So this is what they're doing. And that's one of the projects called Grok Ventures that's doing all this stuff. So there's all this stuff here. And then there's like activist investing to accelerate this transition away from fossil fuels. It's like really cool to actually see someone talking about some something like this and using funds in a kind of in my view, a very kind of pro-social and progressive way, but also somewhat techie and boring, basically. It's like, okay, mm. so you will need to do some boring refinancing of this stuff rather than only looking at the shiny things. It's cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, the things like financing can sound really dull, but I think it highlights how typically you'd look at something like sustainability in a business, big tech company, as being like, okay, yeah, let's do some offsets and we'll reduce our energy consumption and so on. But actually, like looking at how that company has resources and influence that it can use more broadly, mm. that actually can have really big impact is super interesting. And it's really nice to see that they're pulling that lever. It reminds me a little bit of also like when I lived in Australia for a bit, there was a company, a big mortgage company that was looking at introducing solar powered loans. And the idea was basically that mm. they could refinance people's homes in order for them to buy solar panels and then once they got solar panels, that would generate an income that would actually mean they'd pay up for their mortgage faster than if they hadn't done it. And it's things like that where you think, actually, like, it sounds really dull when you're like, talking about like, refinancing things for um, sustainability. But then when you actually look at what you could achieve, it's, oh, actually, that's pretty clever. It was a bit of financial wizardry. Yeah, absolutely. And a really good example in the UK is actually one of the writers of Love Actually. His new thing is actually this thing about divest moving your pensions, basically, moving your pensions out of fossil fuels into renewables. Because he basically said there's... 51 trillion pounds or dollars of yeah. money invested in stuff. And you can either, by default, it's usually invested some chunk of it in fossil fuels. So one of the things you can do is actually just take some of this. You're not having to give any money. You're just making a change. So it's not doing the bad stuff and going into the good stuff. It's really cool. They said like they've run, they started the, pro, the campaign just a few years ago. And they talk about how they've been able to redirect something like more than a trillion pounds of investment away from fossil fuels into renewables already, which is going to make really a significant good. change, right? Yeah, once you find the leverage point, it's pretty impressive. And this is going back to like the whole what we're talking about. This is one of the reasons why it's interesting to work at a developer level. Because there aren't that many developers, this is the argument that Asim keeps making. It's basically, because there aren't that many developers, if you can impact some of the developers to make changes there, then you can have some relatively high leverage changes that cascade through the actual supply chain, basically. So that's one of the things. Yeah. But sometimes you do need boring policy things, or not boring, <laughs> but a whole need necessary, but sometimes you need to do the work on the policy front for this. 
And uh, this is something we spoke about ages ago, actually, when you folks published your sustainability policy and then you, you released it with Creative Commons. Yeah, yeah. That was really helpful because that was directly relevant for our organization. We ended up essentially using that as a template ourselves for this stuff. And that's probably a nice segue into the next story that we see here. All right. So this one is about Holgren Digital. We've introduced an employee activism policy. So this is talking about some of the other things you can do as a technologist, which aren't just about coding, because while coding is fun, we are also citizens as well as just consumers, or I don't know what, I, can't, I don't have a word for, a ah, contractor. Yeah. yeah, we're more than just contractors and, and consumers, I suppose. Maybe you could talk about, a bit about this one, because there's a bunch of thought that's got into this, and I was really pleased to see this go live, actually. Yeah, sure. So it actually came from an event called Goodfest that I attended last year. Goodfest is a sort of creative conference for for making the world better, essentially, held down in Cornwall every year. It's an amazing event. And there was a talk there from a guy at Patagonia, and he was talking about how Patagonia in the US is like really supportive of their employees taking part in activism. Immediately after that, I had a lunch with a guy called Viral who is involved with Just Stop Oil. And it was a really interesting conversation where he started talking to me about how actually a lot of the barriers to activism are employment related. Activism can come in many forms, but a lot of people are in either nervous to get involved because they're worried that it might reflect badly in terms of what their employer might think of them, mm. or they'll struggle to get time off work, or they can't afford to get time off work, or they're worried that, like, what happens if I get in trouble and, like, I get arrested or something, and then I might lose my job? Or what happens if something happened and maybe I got glued to a bus or something and then I had to miss a day <laughs> off work? And, <laughs> and people think, oh, it, I don't really know how I can fit this into my life as an employee in a company where I've got responsibilities and I don't know how the company will look upon it and so on. And we started chatting in about surely like companies could introduce things that would basically try to mitigate as much of this as possible. So I set about trying to figure out like what might those things be. And then along the way, Ben Tolhurst from Business Declares, which is like a nonprofit organization that gets businesses to commit to net zero and playing a role in trying to tackle climate change. He heard that I was working on this, got really interested because he's really interested in the sort of activism side of things himself. And also he's got a lot of connections with people in other businesses that are looking at what they could do from a climate change point of view. So it quickly evolved into Ben helping write the policy as well as hooking in people from other companies who were, who were intrigued by this idea, or maybe this is something that that we might be interested in doing as a company. Mm. We then realised that we really need some lawyers to tell us whether we're doing something stupid. <laughs> so we involved yeah. Bates Wells, which is a B Corp law firm, and who are basically like a bunch of hippies that have got law degrees. And I'm not sure if they'd <laughs> like me describing them that way, but I think that's why they're so brilliant. They they care about the outcome rather than just being a, like a, all about risk mitigation and making principled legal professionals who like granola. Yeah. Yeah, they're, yeah, that's, yeah, they're great. And they were really helpful in basically going through it. And rather than literally tearing all of the heart out of it, which it did get run by another law firm who literally did that, came back and said, just don't do it. Bateswells came back and they were like, look, here's all the risks we can see. Here's our thoughts on how you can mitigate them. You go decide how much risk you're prepared to take. And so the outcome of that is that we crafted a policy for our company, Whole Grain Digital, which basically means that people can take time off to in get involved in various forms of activism. Mm. If they do get arrested, they're not going to get fired. So there's security of employment. If they do get mm. arrested, we'll contribute to the bail money if necessary. So there's some things that we could do that are quite tangible that basically say, look, like if you're passionate, we're not going to tell you to go out and do anything. Mm. But if it's, this sort of comes intrinsically to you and you feel this is important, it's not just climate change. It might be some other kind of social or environmental issues. 
and you want to go and stand up for it, then we really want to back you because we need people in society like that. And here's what we can do. And then in return, it basically says, here's the things we ask of you if you're going to do that and you want some support from us as a company. And basically is saying, look, just be careful. Try to keep yourself safe. And but we have your back, basically. But we have your back. This. Yeah, exactly. So we published ours and then Business Declares then published a variant of it, which is open source, so that any company can base... And it's got guidance notes in the template as well, including some of these things that the, the law spoke to us about. So that as a company, you can basically take this template and say, okay, how might this fit for us? How much risk are mm. we prepared to take? And you can craft your own policy, go and get your own legal advice... But hopefully, more and more companies will see this as a way of lowering the barrier to entry for people who would like to get involved in more activism, but maybe feel like there's some things that are holding them back. Cool. I'm really glad you shared that. And I really like the approach that you've mentioned about it almost being a kind of like modular approach. So you're able to see how far you're able to go. Because this somewhat reminiscent of the work, I believe the Chancery Lane in the UK has been doing around writing climate clauses into kind of commercial contracts and things like that. Because I know that you folks have spoken about things like having a carbon budget on a consulting project, or if you're building something, you'll do things like that. Mm. They have a bunch of existing mechanisms like that, which are easy to put into standard form contracts. So when you are doing some work, these are the things you can include. And mm. I assure you, there is a kind of link to WordPress for this, which is where I'm, where I'm getting to with this. The way that the people at Chancery Lane explained it to me was basically this idea that in the legal world, there's like LexisNexis and there's a few organizations which have these kind of standard form pro contracts. They're a bit like the WordPress of standard commercial contracts that you do this stuff. And they realized this and they said, okay, we can take some ideas from open source and we can apply it to the legal kind of world. So there is now a website called Climate Clauses, which is from the Chance Relaying Project, which is, you know how like WordPress plugins extend something to yes. carry it in new directions? They've basically taken the same approach to standard form contracts that people use for entering business deals with other people, for example, and said, well, here's how you can include like the module for net zero or the module for a budget or the module for uh, environmental performance clauses. It's really cool That's stuff. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. We'll share a link to that as well, because when I first heard about that, when I had a lawyer explain it to me and say, yeah, dude, it's, this is basically, you no. Know, we, we saw what you folks were doing with WordPress. We figured we should have that too. And I thought, wow, that was such a cool idea because it's so different from, it's very easy as a techie to just think, oh, well, we're the only people with this special te technique. But it turns out that, no, other skills and other industries can be inspired by some of the things that we're doing here. Yeah, yeah. And like you said earlier about the sustainability policy that, that we shared with you guys, I guess, a few years ago, mm. there's no point people wasting time and money and energy, like reinventing the wheel. If somebody's doing something that might be useful to others, put it out there, share it. And then we can all stand on each other's shoulders and go a lot further, a lot faster, I think. Yeah, I agree. And just to round this story off, the example of these contracts, uh, just going back, there's a project called, there's a contract called the Salesforce Sustainability Exhibit. So Salesforce, a large company, they basically use this. They use the chance relaying climate clauses as the basis for all their stuff they do with all of their supply chain now. So it all, just like open source, it always comes up in weird places. Mm. So it turns out that a bunch of people working on a side project ended up having some of the basis for one of the largest companies in the world to be for them to use as their basis for essentially building sustainability and climate awareness into how they do business with pretty much the entire supply chain. That is amazing. Ripple effect, eh? Yeah, yeah. indeed. 
All right. So speaking of open source, let's look at the next thing that we have here. So this is Falcon, an entirely open source LM, which is a large language model you can run on your laptop. Tom, this was this might feel a little bit left field. And I, <laughs> I, I'll give the introduction and then I'll let you come in on this one, actually. Sure. So we're used to large language models coming from organizations like Facebook or Microsoft or Google, for example, or not necessarily coming from, but us being able to use the results of. Yeah. And this one here is, okay, weirdly or unexpectedly, United Arab Emirates have basically published a entirely open source, royalty-free machine learning module. And there's a few things which are interesting in my book. When we looked over the website, they it's designed to be more efficient than, say, GPT-3 by a significant amount. And it requires maybe a fifth of the computer inference time. So when you've used, once you've trained it, you're using to trying to get numbers back when you, when you speak to chat GPT. It's that kind of thing. That's what they're using. And this is designed to be open for anyone to use. So rather than having to only get it from, say, OpenAI or only from Google, anyone is able to run this, even on, if your laptop's fast enough, your own laptop here. And I think this is one of the first and largest and highest kind of performing open models for this. And it speaks to the idea that only a few years ago, but only less than six months ago, these were millions of dollars to train and only available from $3 trillion companies. And now you can train and run this stuff on your own hardware for less than a million, tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> right? It's Amazing, a, right? A huge leap forward. And it, yeah, it feels a bit ironic that that this is not coming from OpenAI. <laughs> it's mm. coming from coming from the Technology Innovation Institute in the United Arab Emirates as an open source option, which is amazing and brilliant that they're doing that. And it's almost it's a- weird that like OpenAI, it's not open source. It's not really open data, but it has the word open. And you not you don't typically associate open with lots of the kind of news that you might read about the U about say the UAE, for example, especially when you think about things like say COP28 and stuff. And exactly. yet here you have an open model being released. It gives you an idea of just where the stuff comes from open source. It's really hard to predict, basically. So we'll see what happens with this. And it really uh, is. Yeah. for folks who are curious about this, we've shared a link to Hugging Face, which is a kind of GitHub for machine learning stuff, where there is a bunch of really interesting work by, it's one of the only machine learning companies I know of with a climate lead who specializes there. And maybe one day we'll get, we'll be able to get them onto the show. No, Sasha Lucioni, she's been creating some really good papers. And uh, yeah, this is one of the things that she's been doing, actually. So we'll share a link to that for folks to look at. All right, should we look at the last story then, Tom? Because yeah. this one was one that you shared that I think is a really nice one, actually. So this is heating swimming pools with servers. And this one, maybe you can talk about this one, actually, Tom, because this was the one that you brought along. Yeah, so this one really caught my imagination. About a year ago, there was there was a company that was in the Netherlands that was building sort of small data centers on farms to heat greenhouses. And that, that really caught my mm. imagination as like a great way of doing things. And then suddenly this one popped up in the UK. It's a company called Deep Green installing tiny cloud data centers at leisure centers, basically. And it's this beautiful kind of symbiotic relationship between data centers that need cooling and swimming pools that need heating. And particularly, we've got this energy crisis, like energy prices have gone through the roof. A lot of Mm. local councils in particular are like really struggling with money. Some swimming pools are being closed down just because of like costs of heating the things. And then you've got this company that comes along and says, actually, like we could put a little data center (laughs) in your leisure center (laughs) and heat your swimming pool essentially for free. 
we'll pay for the electricity to run the servers and give you the heat. It, it just seems like such a brilliant solution where you've got this huge tank of water that needs to be kept constantly warm and you've got these servers that need to be kept constantly cool. It's one of those things where when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, how has no one thought of this before? Yeah, it's, there's a pleasing circularity to this. And they're kind of this term called free cooling, which is usually around air. And this yeah. feels like the same idea. I'm a big fan of this as well, actually. It also asks questions about what data centers should and shouldn't look like because we're used to data centers being... Well, not the common narrative for big data centers, or when you hear a data center's machine learning, you're thinking of like a football pitch full of machines, yeah. which is almost like a kind of big box, out of town, Walmart style warehouse full of things, like a bit barn. And this is the polar opposite. It's integrating it into the fabric of the urban environment, for example. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really nice story, actually. Thanks for sharing this one. It's okay. All right. So we're just coming up to the half an hour mark and we're just going to look at some of the events now actually so i guess the thing we should probably share is this is the 5th of june time of recording and if you aren't aware today is the un world environment day and today you probably us recording this now is probably going to be a little bit late for people to know about this but there is an there is a virtual event taking place later on today which will be recorded which is by the Green Software Foundation called Green Software Revolution, where there's a number of people, including the one of the head, the, the chair of the community group, Anne Curry, Asim Hussein, he of Principles Green, Pindi Bolar at UBS, the, at the bank, who was also a PhD specialist in sustainability, and Tamara Kanis, who was the lead researcher for the State of Green Software report. So there's a bunch of stuff there, and it'll be online for people to stream or look at afterwards after this. And what else have we got? They've got this open source infrastructure meetup in London on June the 14th as well. We have that there. Is there anything that caught your eye on this one, Tom? I guess my curiosity is more to see what's happening in terms of sustainability in this open source world. They're going to be focusing on AI and deep learning for enterprise. And I guess we're at this space now where the whole AI world is like kicking off in a big way this year. And there's in the sustainability world, I guess the question is just, oh my God, how much energy is going to be used by these things? I think it's fair to say a lot of us are in this space where we're like torn with these like amazing, exciting opportunities of the technology, <laughs> as well as some of the potential threats, both from an environmental point of view, from a like societal point of view. So for me, the, I'm just curious to see what the open source world is bringing to this conversation, because obviously that's where a lot of kind of conversations around tech ethics often happens in the open source world. Yeah, I'm with you on this as well. It's easy to get really caught up in some of this stuff, especially if you start playing with some of these like chat tools. But you're right, there is a non-zero footprint associated with this stuff. And even now, it's actually quite difficult to find some of the numbers for this. We have shared links to give some estimates of this. And now that you have an entirely open stack, presumably you could start coming up with some numbers and yet, I'm not aware of any services that still provide these numbers on a kind of per-request basis yet, like how Website Carbon has done, or even some of the stuff that we've done with like CO2JS or so on. But it does feel like it's needed. So you're aware of when you're speaking to someone, what the actual impact of that, when you speak, not someone, when you're speaking to Spice <laughs> Autocomplete, like... It's not a person. We've got to remember that. Like I, When I've tried these tools, I keep having to tell myself, don't say thank you. It's a slippery slope. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean, but if you're British, you're taught to, you're taught to <laughs> apologise when someone stands on your own foot, let alone yeah. saying please and thank you. I know, but I feel like saying yeah. thank you to ChatGPT is the slippery slope to ex machina. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. <laughs> 
All right, Tom. I'm gonna I'm gonna park that there before we go down that scary rabbit hole. <laughs> but I'm just gonna, which is coming up to the end. So I'm just gonna come up with one of the questions. Are there any open source projects that you've seen that you might direct people to, or anything that you'd like to direct people's attention to whilst I have you here on this call before we head off? I guess the thing that would be great to direct people to is the W3C Susty Web Community Group, which is, to be honest, I haven't been anywhere like as involved as I, I would have liked to have been for personal reasons, but they're doing amazing work as a community, really exploring kind of all of the facets of what goes into creating a more sustainable web for the benefit of the wider web community and producing some guidelines to help everybody. So it's just something I'd, if you're interested, go and have a look at it, get involved. There's some exciting stuff happening there. And W3C is the World Wide Web Consortium, W3C, and SustiWeb is the Sustainable Web Group. Exactly, yes. Awesome. Okay, I think they're one of the few groups who are really good at using Wikipedia or using wikis to share links and things, because I think there was a link shared about their massive list of resources that they're working on at the moment. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty good at documentation. It's quite impressive. (laughs) All right, we'll share some links for that for anyone who's also interested in that part there. Tom, I think this brings us up to the time that we have. And I want to say thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed chatting with you again, mate. And it's lovely hanging out again because now that I'm no longer in the UK, it's much, much harder to come visit you for, come visit you in London so, or wherever you are now. So once again, thank you for very much for coming on to the podcast. And I wish you the best. And just before I go, is where should people follow you or where should people look if they want to hear, if they liked the sound of your voice or found what you had to say interesting. Is there a newsletter or a website you would point people to? Yes. So my company's wholegraindigital.com. You find that. You look me up on LinkedIn. There are lots of Tom Greenwoods who run, (laughs) and some of them run web design agencies. But if you find the Tom Greenwood that runs Whole Digital, then that's me. And then I've also got two newsletters. So there's the Curiously Green newsletter, which you can sign up for at wholegraindigital.com slash curiouslygreen, which is a green web newsletter covering things that's going on in the world of sustainable web design, but also green tech more broadly. And then I have another newsletter on Substack called Oxymoron, which is about exploring the confusing world of sustainable business and how we reconcile the aims of creating a more socially and environmentally friendly world with the world of business. Cool. Thank you very much. I'm a subscriber to both of those and I really do enjoy them. So thank you for writing them. And once again, thank you for coming on to Environment Variables, Tom. Take care, mate. Thanks, Chris. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Environment Variables on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave a rating and review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we'd love to have more listeners. To find out more about the Green Software Foundation, please visit greensoftware.foundation. That's greensoftware.foundation in any browser. Thanks again and see you in the next episode.